Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Stand by for today's Encore interview with Frank Conniff. But first, let's talk about protecting the title to your home with Home Title Lock. Deborah's home was stolen. I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls home title theft one of the fastest growing white collar crimes. This story is why you need Home Title Lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to her home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned it. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah also says she was evicted from her home and 85 grand in equity was gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. Folks, this is why you need to get home title lock because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if you're already a victim and you don't know it. Then sign up to help protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. And to get you started, I got you 60 risk-free days of protection. Go to HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. That's HomeTitleLock.com. And now, let the cartoons begin. Broadcasting from Resistance Headquarters, relentlessly fighting back against the clown dictator and his regime of deplorables. Never give up, never surrender. This is the Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, February 19, 2020, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. On today's Encore interview, we're rewinding one year to February 2019 when my guest was the great Frank Conniff, TV's Frank from Mystery Science Theater and The Mads. Among other things, we talked about Frank's firing from Sirius XM as well as his career in stand-up comedy and legendary shows like MST3K. You can follow Frank's work at Frank Conniff, two N's and two F's on Twitter. And don't forget to check out his most recent book, Codename Douchebag, on Amazon and wherever hilarious graphic novels are sold. By the way, if you like what you hear, please consider supporting my podcast on our Patreon page, BobSeskaShow.com. And now let's return to my chat with the stupendous Frank Conniff. Hello? Frank Conniff, how are you? It's Bob. Good. How are you doing? I can't help but to get your take on the uh, Michael Cohen hearing so far. It's uh, pulse pounding, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um you know, it's interesting and but to me um you know, the main thing that's just very striking about it is how awful all the Republicans on the uh, committee are. Yeah. And uh it's just um the way they just want to cover up for Trump and uh 
Um, <laughs> it's just, it, it, it's just, um, unfathomable. And, uh, um, and you know, he, everyone's been quoting what he said, uh, which is very apt when he said this, you know, you'll, you're just gonna, I'm paraphrasing, but you're just going to suffer for your loyalty to Donald Trump. Look at what happened to me. And that yeah. just seems so true, mm-hmm. you know, and also the great line, one of the democratic congressmen has a great line. They're not mad at you. Uh, because you're lying uh, for Trump, they're mad at you because you stopped lying for Trump. That was yeah, a great line. Right, that was amazing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, now, I mean, why do you think specifically? I mean, the big question is, why are the Republicans so desperate to backstop for Trump? Is it a simple electoral thing, or do, is there something else that's coercing them into taking this hard line in defense of a of an obvious crook? Yeah, I think it's just cowardice, and I think that, you know they think that that um, despite all the polls that show that Trump is gets more unpopular every day, they're very worried about that so-called Republican base. I think, yeah, um, and uh, they're just uh, being loyal to that, and they're I think they're afraid of of Trump coming after them, and. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> You know, getting uh, nasty tweets written about them. God forbid. What a horrible thing to happen to a person <laughs> to have a tweet written about them. But, um, you know, I mean, uh, the, the Republican Party there, you know, Trump is a symptom of the main problem, which is the Republicans, yeah. you know, and uh, um, it's it's just uh, really awful. Well, it's funny to hear them taking this uh, liar, liar, pants on fire. In fact, they made a thing that's uh, behind the dais in the committee room. That is a giant poster that says liar, liar, pants on fire, for God's sake. They couldn't look more childish, first of all. I know. As, Why didn't they write, just write, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> yeah. Big, big. Later, it's wet willies and purple nurples all yeah. around for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, what's interesting about this, Frank, is is that they're calling Michael Cohen a liar. And the thing Michael Cohen lied about to Congress the first time around was that Donald Trump isn't a crook. So what they're basically saying yeah. is Michael Cohen lied when he said Donald Trump is innocent. It just, just seems like a crazy, yeah. t- like a self-defeating suicidal tactic, doesn't it? It really does. It really does. And, um, you know, nothing is shocking anymore. And, uh, I wouldn't put anything past them. And, uh, um, and I, but I think, um, if you want to have any, uh, positive aspect of all this or, or, you know, bring some light into the whole thing, um, it's just the fact that we're only having these hearings because of, uh, the midterm elections in 2018. And it's really, the people who have it in their power, if only they'd use that power, that all of this can change. It's, they're not going to change. You know, it's, it's, uh, um, the voters who can make a change. And the fact that we, we have a, uh, a a Democrat controlled house of representatives is so significant and it's not nearly, um, it's not enough in terms of changing everything, but it's, it's like I said, it's very significant and, all of the people who worked so hard in 2018 to, to caucus and, 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 you know, and get the vote out mm-hmm. and 
those people are the, kind of the heroes of all this. Yeah, and they really, really voted are. for Democrats. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's a, a really great way to put it. And in fact, I think a lot of people who came out to vote, maybe even for the first time last year, were coming out to vote strictly to see what we're seeing today, strictly for that accountability yeah. to finally be handed down. Because I know I'll speak for myself in this, but I mean, I keep repeating the Jesse Pinkman line from uh, from Breaking Bad, in which he starts screaming about Walter White. He can't keep getting away with this, and it just that's mm. the, the the thing that motivates me more than anything else is to finally see some kind of accountability for this uh, this cabal of, uh, of of criminals and liars that seems like for, yeah. for the last two years so far, all they've been is essentially normalized. Now, granted, there are lots of investigations going on all at the same time, mm-hmm. but in that process, without having any sort of firm verdict on, uh, on Trump himself and his inner circle, Don Jr., Ivanka, Jared, and all the rest, seems just increasingly frustrating to me and increasingly dangerous that because every second they're in office is a, another second in which they're, they're normalized. Right. Yes, exactly. And the, and the, you know, the corporate media does plays a big part in normalizing them. Yeah. You know? yeah. Well, you know, today is a, uh, is a big day because we're talking about Michael Cohen and this uh, testimony in Congress. Everyone's mm-hmm. glued to their television. So I want to thank you for taking the time to be on the show today, Frank, uh, you know, and among you your, are. Among your gigantic body of work, I also want to thank you for giving us the gift of Torgo and his puffy, puffy knees. Oh, my well, Torgo, God. Torgo and Manos, the hands of fate, and somebody's prepared us for the Trump administration. <laughs> that's, a, that's exactly right. Which, uh, which member of the Trump administration would Torgo be? Have you, have you checked out um, their, uh, their chubby knees? Can we, can we make that comparison? I, um, I kind of think uh, Trump is Torgo and uh, Putin is the master. Yeah, exactly right. That's exactly yeah. the way it is. Boy, that's perfect. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure uh, Trump has puffy knees as well. He's got... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what the, the, oh, I don't sure know what, I don't know what they were thinking when they put together the Torgo costume when they were making that movie. Is it okay? Yeah, you know what we need is we need a lackey that has really chubby kneecaps. <laughs> make any I sense know. to me? So I think it, I think part of it was they they could make you know they could pad out the movie because it took them so long to walk across a room. You yeah, know exactly. It took up a lot of screen time. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, I want to come back to uh, Mystery Science Theater uh, here in a second, but uh, I want to tell you, everyone's talking about Sirius XM right now, Frank, because uh, uh-huh. not only are we confused and frustrated, but of course, we, we miss hearing you on the show, on uh, John Fugelsang's show. Mm-hmm. And I know right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss talking to you every Monday on that show. So, um, yeah, what what exactly? I mean, two weeks ago, we learned that your contract wasn't being renewed. And that I mean, that, of course, in and of itself is something that happens all the time. But then we learned that you were banned from the building. Is that true? Um, yeah, um, although I think, um, you know, I think it's not a lifetime ban is what I've heard. But they didn't want me uh, coming back on the show. Um right away yeah. to trash, <laughs> to trash them. But, uh, um, the thing is, is as someone, um, wrote to me and a few people have said to, to me, uh, the same thing is that in radio, the way I was, um, dismissed is very common and they, they wait yeah. till the show is over and then they call you when you get home and then you can't, they don't want you to come back in to trash them on the air. So the way they behaved was very uh, shady and um, not, not admirable at all. And, um, 
but uh, I think that's kind of the way things are done. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'd been on the show for four years, and it's just kind of sucks that they don't even give me a chance to have like a final show, you know, to yeah. kind of say goodbye to everybody. You know, mm. it's just like, sorry, you're gone. That's it. Moving on. Jesus. You know, but hey, that's showbiz. Was this something that you saw coming? I mean, what exactly precipitated this? I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is that it's, it seems like it's just part of the the contract negotiation process ending badly and then them doing the the typical radio thing which i'm having come from radio i'm quite familiar with that so, yeah well no there was no negotiation um i mean my contract was up for renewal but um uh there had been no talks or anything what what yeah. happened um from my understanding is um they didn't like that I was a very, I was critical um, on Twitter. I was very critical of like when Chris Christie was in the building, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, cause I was just worried about structural damage. But other than that, um, <laughs> he was, you know, he was going around and, and he was being interviewed on all these shows, including uh, John interviewed him. And um, I just was just like, um, uh, it just upsets me that these people are treated with respect and is, you know, now that he's yeah. left office, he's a respectable pundit now and everybody treats him with deference. And, um, and I, I don't, I don't like that. I don't like it on CNN when they have these people like Rick Santorum come on and, and they treat them like, uh, their sages or whatever, when all they ever did when they were politicians was do horrible things that hurt people. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I like, you know, I tweeted about it and I, you know, um, uh, I tweeted, a, a poster of Chris Christie that was in the lobby of the building. And I might've said some hurtful things about him and, um, which I've done on the show every day, by the way, for the entire four years, yeah. we've been trashing him. So I just, uh, I, I guess I don't really fit into that corporate culture where you're just supposed to go along. But then I, and I also like the next day, um, Howard Schultz was, was being interviewed at Sirius and they, they have this thing in the lobby called the fishbowl, which is mm-hmm. like this glass enclosed thing where they interview people, everybody can see it. Right. And I took a picture of that and, uh, I'm not a coffee drinker, but I asked, I inquired and I was told that the coffee at Sirius is quite good. So that made me wonder why was he in the building when he already had good coffee. Um, so I guess they didn't like that. And then they were just like, well, screw you. You're you're out of here, man. You know, and that was it. It seems like it blindsided them all of a sudden that you don't have any fucks, Frank, that, that, you know, you, you tell it like it is. And that to me, that's always been apart from being hilarious. I mean, the, the other Frank kind of thing is, you always speak truth to power. You always, I well, mean, it's, yeah, I mean, that's what we, that's what John and I both did on the show every yeah. day, you know? So it's just, um, very, uh, disappointing. Um, you know, I'm very, uh, almost obsessively, um, critical of corporate media. I think corporate media is why we are, we are today as much mm-hmm. as anything, as much as any politician, you know, they did, um, the, the Iraq war was sold to us by the corporate media with very little criticism. And Donald Trump, you know, received unprecedented access to airwaves and they just aired his speeches in the entirety. So yep. um, it, 
it's it's something that that's weighs on me a lot um is how awful corporate media is um mm. but one thing i i forgot was that serious is corporate media too you know <laughs> so yeah. uh um you know I, I just think people uh in boardrooms i mean it's kind of silly when you think about it the idea that you know one or two criticisms for me that they would be afraid of that you know i mean yeah. i they have i have no power over serious or what they do i'm not going to hurt their bottom line one way or the other but but one thing that i did was i helped uh that was with john fugelsang and i we we had an entertaining show that people really liked and it had been renewed every year that that was still on the air after four years so for them to just abruptly change the dynamic of the show overnight is just very um confusing and um kind of infuriating on on their part yeah yeah i mean it's a great combination between the two of you and i i don't think i've ever talked about this publicly but i mean the dynamic and the chemistry between you and john and then uh ronda handsome being mixed into the uh yeah the the troop there too It, it you know where you've got a style where you're you know you're juggernaut frank and you plow forward right right to the heart of the issue and then fugel saying What's uh, kind of amazing about his style is what he'll do is he'll listen to what the other person has to say, and then he'll take all of those words and ball them up into his fist and hammer them back <laughs> right right yeah, at the person he's exactly. interviewing. If, exactly. If it's warranted, yeah. of course, and, and that's kind of his genius. Mm-hmm. And So it was this dual approach that you guys were taking, and I think taking you out of that mix is uh, is is going to be negative about the show. I mean, certainly I think John yeah. can, can carry a show all on his own own but at the same time oh absolutely there's a big missing element now it feels like there's a part missing from the show is what it feels like but but it's also you know i think it's it's and sometimes with corporations it's it seems like sometimes the last thing they're thinking about is their consumers and um they're thinking about other things Mm -hmm. that have more importance to them and you know our listeners um, who really enjoyed and supported our show over four years. They, they are subscribers. They paid to listen to the show and, and it was a show they really enjoyed. And, um, and Sirius just decided to change that overnight. And and I'm sure, um, um, there weren't complaints from the listeners about me. Uh, making fun of Chris Christie and uh, Howard Schultz. So that's why they, that's what they listen to the show for. Yes, of course. Jesus. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, y- you know, it's just it's it's really sad to see you go. And I, I don't mean to uh, get overly conspiratorial and re- keep rehashing all uh, this. But I mean, do you think it was do you think the fact that they scaled the show back from three hours to two hours was part of this process where they're like, OK, first we're going to do this and then we're going to not renew Frank's contract and then maybe. X, Y, and Z, something financial or something like, well, we don't, yeah. we don't like the show. Is it maybe a ratings thing? I don't know, but it seems like it was all part of a piece where first there was the pulling back of the overall runtime of the show, and then suddenly you're gone, and then that seems like, well, what's going to be the third shoe that's going to drop here? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Um, and um, the thing that was, um, uh, you know, really just um, confusing about them scaling back our show. And by the way, uh, no one was more supportive of the show being cut to two hours than me. <laughs> I, loved, 
I, I said yes to our, and I love that it was like earlier in the day and, and just in terms of like, you know, my daily life, it, it just, I considered that like a better fit for that. I could be done by two and then yeah. go home and all that. But, um, but the thing is, 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 uh, they replaced us. Uh, and this goes back to them not really caring about, uh, the listeners and the subscribers at all. They, they replaced us with a three hour, um, uh, Christian financial advice show, you know, Jesus. which is like the, uh, the opposite of, and no one in, in our fan base approved of that at all. And I doubt if any of them are listening to that, you know, mm-hmm. um, and then they moved us to 12. And so, you know, before they did, uh, this to me, this was something where they were just screwing with our listeners and not caring about them at all by moving us and replacing us with a, completely, you know, um, opposite, uh, uh, type of, I mean, I could see if they replaced us with another comedian doing another show, Mm -hmm. then that would maybe be within the same, uh, kind of vibe that we had established, but they didn't do that. They, they replaced us with the exact opposite of what our show is. And so it's just all, um, you know, it's, uh, it's very concerning and, um, like, I don't know how much of a future the uh, uh, Sirius XM Insight channel, which is the channel we were on, um, has. And, uh, you know, uh, I, but whatever happens, I hope that uh, Pete Dominic, who's on in the morning, and John, uh, who's on like right after him, that there's, there's always, I hope there's always some place for them at Sirius XM, but I don't know if it's going to be on the, if the XM Insight channel, um, is going to survive. Uh, some people are worried that it's going to be like the Outcue channel, which was mm. the uh, gay theme channel they had, and they just disbanded the whole thing a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, it seems like uh, John Fuglesang's entire style belongs on the Insight channel. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, he's it, all about the Insight, right? Yeah, and also, you know, it's he always liked, and so did I, that it wasn't just about politics. Mm-hmm. Um it was uh, about whatever we wanted to talk about and about pop culture. I can give no better example of that than when I guest hosted and I spent the whole two hours talking about yes. And then you called in <laughs> to talk about politics. And then we found out that you did the art on a yes album. And then it just <laughs> continued being a discussion about yes for the entirety. That was one of my favorite, favorite appearances because of course, yeah. you know, getting to talk about yes with you. I mean, that, that uh, takes me back. I don't know, 15 years when I was watching mystery science theater and suddenly the, you know, the guys are telling jokes about in and around the lake mountains come out of the sky and they stand there yeah. and I'm going, Oh, Oh my God! They know. They know. <laughs> so that was a yeah. that was a great. I, I love that appearance. In fact, I wish I had a, a tape of that particular call because I'd yeah. love to have a record of that. But that, you know, that was really fun. You know, I love your movie review podcast with Trace. Movie signed with the Mads, oh, and of thank course, you. I subscribed and, on iTunes and everything. Uh, but, and Carolina Hildago. Oh yeah! Oh my God! It's the best movie review podcast out there because, of course, it's you and it's Trace, and you know, just it's unbelievably. Mm. Ins- I mean, talk about insightful. It's right there. I mean, obviously, oh, thank you. Uh, an entire panel of, of people who know everything there is to know about film, reviewing modern movies mm. and so on, and, and, and giving your, uh, your take on, uh, on what's going on in film and so on. Are, are you planning anything by a way of a political podcast now that, you're, uh, now that you've parted ways well, with Sirius? Uh, 
Yeah, I'm kind of um, on the lookout, and I'm and there's uh, one uh, like um, podcasting network in particular that I think I'm going to meet with, and and I would love to go back to doing uh, some kind of a um, a current events based thing. Um, so we'll see if that happens. I mean, it's definitely something I'm I'm uh, kind of looking into, and. Yeah. Um, uh, so that 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 could happen, hopefully in the near future. Well, it's uh, to me, it seems like as far as politics go, and getting uh, you know sort of uh, venting and getting things off your chest in that sort of format is uh, going to be a lot. I think you're going to enjoy that a lot more than than sort of being subjected to the serious XM whimsy of uh, you know we don't yeah. want you critic we don't want you being frank frank. Which just seems like the, that was the Sirius XM uh, line, basically. Well, that's that's one of the you know um, the media landscape that we live in. Um, I think right now would be completely disastrous, except for the fact that there's this whole world of independent um, media, like what you do and a lot of people do, who just put their stuff out there um, and through podcasts and who are not subjected to corporate interference they just do what they want to do and uh, there's a whole world of that out there and that's such a great thing that's such a um, a positive um, aspect and it's really <clears throat> you know this might sound like hyperbole but i kind of feel like the independent um, um internet journalism that's out there is really saving our democracy because yeah. otherwise you know the exact moment when when they deregulated everything and then suddenly like two corporations could own everything at that exact moment, that's when the internet came along and, and provided all these independent voices. And it's really just been uh, so important. And, uh, and, you know, one interesting thing about, about the effect of podcasts is that, you know, when I go on the road and stuff, I hear people come up and say to me, oh, I really like your podcast. And I think they're talking about the movie one I do, but they're talking about the serious show. People <laughs> refer to radio shows as podcasts now. Yeah, funny. Which is kind of amazing. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, you know, seeing this all happen firsthand and close up, it's interesting to observe that online publications, especially independent ones, are actually going through a bit of a recession right now, where I think Facebook yeah. is really destroying a lot of independent voices through their their yes. usual fuckery and and uh, you know booting mm -hmm. a lot of people and throttling the reach of certain pages and so on. But at the same mm -hmm. time, you know, podcasting seems to be flourishing and and not being ne necessarily affected by uh, what's happening with Facebook and and some of the other uh, shitty things, the the advertising and so yeah. on that's damaging uh, publications. But you know, podcasts seem to be mm -hmm. doing doing pretty well. And I'm knocking yeah. on wood because I I hope it continues that way too. Yeah, uh, we'll have to to uh, hope that you know. And of course, with uh, net neutrality and all that stuff, I mean, they would love to just destroy all of it and yeah. uh, and make it you know, all under the thumb of uh, corporations, but hopefully that, that won't happen. Well, it seems like this kind of thing is something that you've been prepping for your entire life, Frank. I mean, I, you, you know, your dad was a reporter for Hearst and, and won the Pulitzer right. for interviewing Nikita Khrushchev. I mean, my God, uh -huh. talk about a, uh, a perfect storm leading up to now. I mean, you've got Russia there. But I, what was it like around the dinner table uh, as a kid, uh, you know, with your dad so deeply ensconced in, in world events and so on? Was, it, was there a lot of political discussion uh, in your household? Yeah, there were, you know, um, 
you know, my father, his work took him away a lot, but um, when he was at the dinner table and even when he wasn't there, um, there was a lot of um, talk about what was going on in the world. You know, we, I grew up in a very, um, you know, a very media saturated household. In other words, like uh, every newspaper, uh, every magazine mm-hmm. uh, was, was in our house all the time. And, um, and, and we were very, all of us, my brothers, my sister, my mother and me, um, we were all very kind of aware of that world. We knew who wrote for what newspapers, you know, um, uh, we knew who we know the names of all the writers and all the magazines. And so we would have discussions about all that stuff. Um, and, uh, so, um, it was, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a very, uh, stimulating, uh, kind of way to grow up, you know? So, so, I mean, in fact, I mean, you were just talking about the, uh, the corporate media and so on before, I mean, I can imagine where, Mm -hmm. you know, your dad being ensconced, in, in all of that, in the 50s and 60s especially, uh, you know, you have that kind of perspective where you know kind of what it, what it used to be like and how that kind of yeah. attitude, the kind of professionalism that I think your dad brought to the table, brought to his, uh, uh, you know, the world of publishing, it doesn't really mm. exist like that anymore, does it? Well, I think the thing is, you know, there was, uh, you know, there was a lot of, uh, corporate controlling of, of information back then, uh, same as there is now. But, um, but I think the difference is, is there wasn't every newspaper was owned by a different company, you know, yeah. Yeah. and uh, and I think um, you know that I think led to a, a diversity of uh, of things being printed. And even if you didn't like what what was in the mainstream media, you know, you had the Village Voice, and you had like kind of alternative voices. Um, that that you could read, and also you know newspapers weren't allowed to own uh, TV stations and vice versa, and that was a much better way of doing things. And you know some of this we all have to we we really have to blame on the Clinton administration because that's when a lot of the de- deregulation it started oh, yeah. with Reagan, and then a lot of it a lot of it uh, happened in the Clinton administration too. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, that's where things went to uh, went to hell right there. You can draw direct parallels yeah. for what you know the the deregulation uh-huh. of Reagan and then the deregulation by Clinton. And now we're seeing yeah. all kinds of additional deregulation uh, by Trump that, you know, it, 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 well, it's not going to take 10 years, but certainly in the not too distant future, uh, pardon the pun, is, you know, we're going to be talking about how Trump destroyed so much of what was remaining of, uh, yes, of, yeah. of regulations. And whatever that happens, whatever happens with Trump, however long he's in office, even if he leaves office tomorrow, yeah. it's going to take a long time to to fix a lot of the, the mess that he's making and continues to make. It's, it's, yeah. it's very scary. No doubt. I mean, were you, uh, you were talking about how media was a big part of your childhood. I mean, were you a cinephile as a kid or was that something that kind of happened later? Oh no, as a kid as well, I was, um, I was very, um, into movies and, um, you know, and very, um, into show business and, uh, you know, um, you know, becoming a comedian was something I started thinking about very early in my life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my dad was friend, was friends with comedians. He was, he was friends with Jackie Gleason. He was friends with Phil Silvers. Wow. He was friends with Joe, Joe E. Lewis. And, uh, so I, I, you know, I have a lot of comedian friends who 
like, um, you know, they're like, when I was a kid, I never would have thought of being a comedian. Then I just happened to drift into it. But I kind of grew up around the whole milieu. Uh, Jack, um, Ed Sullivan um, was, people don't remember this, Ed Sullivan was a newspaper columnist. He had a newspaper column, uh, well, even when he had his TV show. So my Mm -hmm. dad knew him. So that whole world of show business was something that I was very aware of. Um, and the world of movies and television, and I was always just interested in it right from the start. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because a couple of weeks ago I interviewed uh, Edie Adams's son, Josh Mills, for Ernie Kovacs. Oh, Ernie, it was Ernie Kovacs's 100th birthday, I think, uh, uh-huh. uh, last month. And it's well known that Joel Joel Hodgson is a Kovacs style comic who was, in fact, I think he yeah. won the uh, the first ever Ernie Kovacs yeah, award. Yeah, Joel is uh, Joel was friends with Edie Adams. I, I actually yeah. the one time I met her was Joel introduced me to her at a uh, party in L.A. one time. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, do you have a similar connection to Ernie's comedy as, as Joel does? Um, well, I have that connection of, um, of just um, appreciating it and also, um, you know, being influenced by all the stuff that Ernie Kovacs influenced, like Letterman yeah. and, uh, and all that stuff. Um, and, uh, and Steve Allen. I, th- I think Steve Allen is probably, in terms of his work as a broadcaster, is at least as influential to me as, as Ernie Kovacs. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, uh, yeah, I definitely have that, that kind of connection to all that stuff. In fact, if, if Kovacs were around and I think he would do this, uh, certainly when he was, uh, was, was working in uh, television and so on. But, you know, I think Ernie Kovacs was also an influence of Steve Allen, where he was saying that Kovacs would complain that Steve Allen was stealing like Mr. Question Man and some of his bits. And, oh yeah. You know, yeah. Was... people like Kovacs, you know, um, People now who, you know, they don't, you know, younger comedians now who aren't aware of him, they're, but they're still influenced by it because they're influenced by the three generations of people who were influenced by Kovacs. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, we'll get back to our conversation with Frank Conniff here in just one second. But first, I wanted to give you the latest news about liberal broadcaster Bill Press. Bill no longer does his progressive morning show, but that doesn't mean he's gone away. No way. He's out now with a great new podcast, The Bill Press Pod, dropped twice a week. Check out The Bill Press Pod for Bill's interviews with some of the country's leading progressives like Maxine Waters, Mark Pokin, Jamie Raskin, all roasting Donald Trump, plus his lively end-of-the-week roundtable with three of Washington's top political reporters commenting on the latest craziness from the White House, Congress, and the 2020 Democratic primary. For years, Bill Press has been one of the leading progressive voices in the country, so I'm glad he's still out there on the left stronger than ever. I encourage you to join me by subscribing to Bill's new podcast. Just go to Wherever you get your podcast, search for the Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and you're in for a true progressive experience on the Bill Press Pod. Okay, now picture your face in the mirror. Do you see all those wrinkles around your eyes? How about crow's feet or those large under-eye bags? Now imagine that they're gone. And I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery. I'm talking about gone in just a matter of minutes. We're talking, of course, about Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in just a matter of minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. And if you don't believe it, I didn't either until I took the test and I was blown away by the results. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. Then the best part is... Plexiderm goes on clear, so no one is going to know that you're using it 
unless you tell them, of course. Go to triplexiderm.com. Use my code VOICES for 50% off a full-size bottle of Plexiderm plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is available by calling one 800 this offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit triplexiderm.com today and use the code VOICES at checkout. That's triplexiderm.com, code VOICES. The Bob Seska Show. Was there kind of an epiphany moment for you, Frank, where you discovered that you could make people laugh and, and learn that there was power in that? Was there? Did you kind of go I'm, through I, that? I, I'm sorry. I'm still waiting for that moment, but, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I really, when I was in school as I was a, like, uh, you know, I was a total wise ass and, and, and it was something I could do when I was a kid was make mm-hmm. other people laugh. But, um, but becoming a standup comedian was not an easy road for me. I mean, it took me a long time to really figure it out. And, uh, and learn how to do it. I know for some people it comes easily. It, it was a really long, uh, hard road for me, which, which I think had to do with personal issues of self-doubt. And also, you know, I had it back then I had an alcohol and a drug problem. Hmm. And so I think something that I, that when I look back on it, it, um, if I had the wisdom I have now, then like, I, I think I could have very easily, just gone up and become a stand-up comedian, but it, it, it really took me uh, a lot of trial and error till I till I got any good at it. Yeah, yeah. W- what were your substances of choice? You said you had a drug and alcohol problem, which it actually, in, in effect, I don't want to put the cart ahead of the horse here, but that that led you to Minnesota, which then led you to MST3K. So, but yes. what, what were you? Uh, I mean, what what made you decide I've got to I've got to drop these. Uh, these addictions and, uh, seek help. I mean, what were, what were you doing at the time? Oh, well, you... I mean, I was into, you know, I was into, um, alcohol and I liked cocaine and I, mm-hmm. I, I liked to smoke a lot of pot and, uh, you know, take whatever was available. But, but what really led me to recovery was just the knowledge that anything that I wanted to do in my life, any, all of the dreams that I had, mm-hmm. you know, and I had some big dreams, but they were not attainable as long as I was, as long as I had substance abuse in my life, you know? And, um, so, um, that's what really kind of, uh, motivated me, but I was also very much helped by my family, which staged an intervention, um, and sent me to Minnesota. But, uh, um, you know, but the reason, um, my recovery took, I think was like, just my knowledge that this is the only way that I can become a comedian, that I can become a writer, that I can have a career that I want to have. I can't do it while I'm taking drugs because they get in the way of everything, you know? And so I think that's, that motivated me. It seems like, uh, there might've been a a motivation to, uh, to get involved in, in drugs and, and, uh, alcohol abuse and all the rest of it, because, you know, there's kind of this attitude that creative people have these demons. And in order to be a successful creative person, you too have to have those demons. Is that, was there a pressure there? Did you feel like, well, you know, things aren't uh, happening as quickly as I want with stand-up comedy and so on. So maybe if I do what Richard Pryor is doing or uh, George Carlin yeah. or some of these other guys. I mean, I don't think I thought that way. I mean, I think I think it was just that I have an addictive personality. And once I started doing um, 
these addictive drugs, I became an addict, you know, and, um, it really wasn't like, I didn't feel like it was like it helped my creativity or, or anything like that. I think it was just that, um, that, uh, I have a natural tendency to have an addictive personality. And once I got involved with these things, um, there was no stopping me, you know, and, um, uh, you know, and, and I kind of believe all that stuff about, um, you know, it's very harmful to think that you would need drugs to be creative. I mean, I think, you know, Charlie Parker, like ruined a whole generation of jazz musicians because they thought they had to take heroin because Charlie Parker did, you know, Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's just, uh, it's, I can understand when you're young why you why you would think that way, but for musicians or comedians or writers or any kind of creative person, it's it, the whole idea that 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 drugs helps your creativity um, is just um, uh, it's just a myth and it's not true. Yeah, and is that something you kind of discovered uh, before you left for Minnesota? Because you went to Minnesota for rehab, right? And then uh, is that yeah, something I went you did- to Minnesota for rehab, and that was. Um, you know, I had tried to uh, get off drugs uh, before, and um, it didn't take. And and I think it was very good for me to just get away from New York, which is where I, where I got into all the trouble that I got into, yeah. and uh, just have a completely fresh start. And uh, and um, you know, I could have come back home after I was in rehab, but I I made the decision to stay in in Minneapolis. And and plus, you know, Minneapolis is such a great city, which I never thought about Minneapolis in my life, except for watching the Mary Tyler Moore show, you know, and, uh, it's such a great place. (laughs) It's such an intelligent cosmopolitan, um, town filled with, filled with creativity, creative people. And, uh, I, I just loved it there, you know? And, uh, so it was just kind of, I was very, I was extremely lucky in, in the way things turned out once, but I wasn't able to have any of that luck unless I got sober. Yeah. I mean, it must have been culture shock going from New York City in the in the seventies to Minnesota at that same time, right? It, you know, just the the vast differences between those two environments yeah. must have been mind blowing. I mean, it is a, it is a different um, vibe and a different culture, a little a uh, little more laid back, and mm-hmm. and there's a whole uh, Midwestern kind of <laughs> culture and way of viewing things that was. Uh, new to me, but I, I kind of, I kind of took, I don't know if I had a big culture shock. I think I took to it very, uh, quickly. And, you know, and, and when I moved to LA, um, you know, everyone knew that I was, you know, I was a Minnesota comic and there are a lot of, so many great Minneapolis comedians and a lot of them were in LA then. And so a lot of people, um, when I met out in LA just assumed that I was born and raised in Minneapolis. Cause I have more of that kind of laid back, laid back vibe anyway, you know? Yeah. Um, so it just was, it just was a very suitable place for me. And, and, and I, I go back there once or twice a year now and I, and I always love going back there. And, and so once you're out of rehab, you were doing stand-up comedy in, uh, in Minneapolis. Yeah. Once I, I got out, I, um, I started doing stand-up in, uh, in Minneapolis. And, um, and there was like, you know, there was another very lucky thing. This was like 1985, 1986. And there was just this, uh, you know, that was the height of the eighties comedy boom. when there was a comedy club 
mm-hmm. on every block, you know, <laughs> right. um, in every, every, every apartment had a comedy club. You know, what, what were some of the, what was, what were some of the names of the comedy clubs in Minneapolis? Were they the typical well, the first, yuck yucks and things like that? Yes. Well, actually the very first <laughs> club I played was called the ha ha club, the ha ha club. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sure. And, um, and the thing about that that was good was that it, they didn't serve alcohol there. It was so, it was kind of like a um, a really good place for me to start out um, being a newly sober person. Um, and then after a couple of months, um, I finally um, kind of decided that even though I was worried about being around alcohol, I had to go to the Comedy Gallery, mm-hmm. which was the other comedy club in Minneapolis. And that was really the center of of stand-up comedy in Minneapolis at that time. So I, I really felt like I had to uh, go there. And so I did. And, um, you know, and I made so many great friends. And uh, uh, It was just a really uh, wonderful experience. What was your act like at that point in time? Like what kind of material? Were um, you it was kind of, it was sort of, um, you know, um, uh, like autobiographical, self-deprecating mm. kind of <laughs> what I'm still doing, you know. <laughs> Right. Not really. Uh, like what I'm doing now is just like a more a, a better version of what I used to do then. But mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, it was uh, you know it, it, it was just a very uh, fun thing. And, and you know, and because it was this comedy club boom, um, it was kind of um, you know fortuitous that you know once I sobered up and once I was doing comedy, um, then I I'm like. Right away, I started getting work, you know, and because uh, there were all these like one nighters and you could there was a circuit you could do around the Midwest, like Iowa and North Dakota, South Dakota and Wisconsin. And um, and so I, I was making a very meager living, but I was making a living doing comedy. And that was that was amazing to me at the time. Yeah. It seems like uh, there's there's a, an apprehension when it comes to uh, comedy club owners about hiring comics who are just hammered all the time. Like if you look at it, for example, uh, uh, Bill Hicks's career, where he started out totally right. straight edge, where he wasn't doing anything. And so, and he was getting a lot of work and he was generating a lot of buzz for himself. And then suddenly he started drinking and the comedy club owners are like, I don't know about this guy because he's going way off the rails. So it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic in terms of, uh, what the outside perception is of, uh, standup comedians and substance abuse versus what the reality is. And it's a lot, I think it's a lot different than what people assume. But uh, so yeah. so there in Minneapolis, you're doing stand up comedy. And then, of course, you end up meeting up with uh, Joel Hodgson, J. Elvis Weinstein, the, the Mystery Science Theater crew. And they were already underway right. doing a, a, the first season. Right. When you when you met up with them. Is that is that true? Oh, yeah. In fact, they had done two seasons because they did their first season on a local um, uh, Minneapolis Twin Cities channel, KTLA. Right. Um, <laughs> and if, and if, you then, can, if you can find those episodes on YouTube, they're amazing. Those are early, yeah, early, like cable access, very right? Wasn't early. It? Yeah. yeah, no, it wasn't cable access. It was a low, it was a UHF station. Oh, okay, great. And, uh, and then they got, the show got picked up by, um, the comedy channel, which is now known as comedy central, but mm-hmm. then it was the uh, comedy channel and they did a whole season there, um, before I joined. 
Um, and then, um, Jalis Weinstein, who, uh, um, uh, was on the show. He left the show. Um, and he, he was like the mad scientist assistant and he was a writer there and a brilliant, brilliantly funny person. Um, he left the show and then there was an opening and then I just uh, got a phone call and I, and I got the job, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was as simple as that. Just, just because I knew all those guys, <laughs> Interesting. you know, Mike Nelson, who was the head writer of the show, mm-hmm. I met him when he was like doing his first open mic, you know? <laughs> I, I, so wow. like I knew all these people, Joel was the only one that was, you know, had already had a career in LA and had already been on television um, at Trace Bill U, who I still work with a lot, yeah. he, um, you know, I just met him uh, at that the club I just mentioned, the Haha ha Club. That's uh-huh. where I met Trace Bill U. <laughs> so these were just all my friends who were doing the show. And then when an opening came up, they knew they knew me. They knew that uh, that I was funny, and they also knew that I had this encyclopedic knowledge of movies and show business, which is very appropriate. Uh, for the show so it was just all very very lucky for me it's really like the beatles coming together in a way and i know fugel saying <laughs> i love that reference but th- the story of the show is kind of a miracle it's like a perfect storm um insofar yeah. as it was a completely original idea there were movies that could be mm-hmm. legally used there was a world-class group of you guys of comedians yeah. elevating it far beyond the original concept i mean was there a sense from the beginning from the from the first time you uh you know you stepped into uh into that role was there a sense that you know tv would never allow such a perfect comedic show to actually survive i mean did it seem like it was too good to be true well yeah i mean nobody thought that it would um nobody knew how long it would last and uh when i was there i was you know i was like oh this is great like for maybe the next you know for the next uh eight months or so i don't have to worry about um um money getting gigs because I have this steady thing, but I, I didn't, uh, there was no sense on anyone's part, um, that it would last a long time. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is that was also very lucky about it is back then, you know, like basic cable was much more like, like kind of an off Broadway of television back then, much more than it is now, yeah. you know? Um, in other words, they were, they were willing to, to do experimental things and uh and try different kinds of uh programming and plus mystery science like filled up two hours of programming very cheaply and, mm-hmm. and don't think that that was an insignificant um uh factor in why it was picked up you know it was just this is cheap it'll fill up two hours we can mm-hmm. put it on and um you know and, and that was a part of it and uh so we really were given the room to just do what we wanted to do. And, uh, you know, it wasn't considered mainstream or anything. Um, but there was still like a viable place for it on television. And, um, you know, that it was just, it was, it was just like you said, it was kind of like a perfect storm of things that, that came together. Well, that, uh, comedy channel at that point in time that eventually became Comedy Central, I mean, that was an amazing yeah. time to watch that channel because it's really all about you guys and the Alan Havey show, which was, I mean, between yeah, those Alan two, Havey. 
Yeah, Night After Night was a, just an amazing yeah. kind of late night show that Alan Havey hosted. And it was just, it, it fit together with what you guys were doing because a lot of it seemed, uh, well, of course, you guys were writing all of your material, but so much of it seemed like it was improvised. And that's what, that's what yeah. really, because it felt like that Wild West environment for, for yeah. television yeah. comedy. Absolutely. That, yeah. And also, uh, um, Night After Night. Um, the co-host of Night After Night, the psychic, was Nick Bakai, who I ended up working with in L.A. He's one of the funniest people in the world. Oh, yeah. God, I remember the what he used to do. Like uh, He used to talk about the bottomless cup of Tang. I think that was one of the, one yeah. of the fake <laughs> yeah. prizes that they would give away on uh, that show. God, I miss those guys. Yeah, it's been a long time since I thought yeah. about uh, that show. But, I mean, it was right there, hand-in-hand mm-hmm. hand with MST3K as far as bringing Comedy Central into, uh, into the mainstream. And, you know, again, it's one of those things where you look at a show like MST3K and you wonder, good Lord, how did that manage to survive? And in fact, the story of the show is one of ongoing struggles to survive. Don't you think? It's like you guys were fighting almost an uphill battle with, you know, something that I, I obviously now and, and future television historians are going to look at it as something that was so utterly uh, genius and groundbreaking that it's kind of unheard of to think of it, it as being a show that was constantly embattled with uh, with the network. Isn't that, uh, I mean, it was, that was something you guys well, were dealing with a lot. Well, I don't know. I, at Comedy Central, at least, like, I don't think we were really that embattled with the network. Um, and I, I, I say this in hindsight. Um <laughs> Because, because it was my first TV show, um, like I didn't know that having complete creative freedom was like a unique thing in television, <laughs> you know. And so it was really kind of an ideal situation we had at Comedy Central where they just, part of it was because we were in Minnesota and they were in New York, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, where we just never got notes, we never got any kind of development um meetings with them we just made the show and sent it to them uh that was all there was to it Mm -hmm. and um but i think that the show staying on the air for so long um i think that had a that had a lot to do with the fans of the show um who might have been small but were a uh you know a very vocal minority and when when uh when comedy central canceled the show um it was only because of an outpouring of uh, fan support and mm-hmm. petitions and um, that uh, the sci-fi channel picked them up. And then it was on for another like three years after that. Yep. So, um, you know, it really is a show that could have just stayed on the air all the time, but you know, um, eventually after 10 years uh, it got canceled, but 10 years is a long run. It is. It actually is a very respect, especially given the kind of show that it was. And that's what that's what makes it so impressive that that something like that managed to squeeze through the the loopholes of of television, make it on the air and survive for 10 years. What was your a lot of people obviously recognize you as as TV's Frank as as an on air performer. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't think a lot of people realize that you were specifically uh, involved in the selection and review of the movies that were chosen. What was that, uh, what was that process like? Well, that was, um, um, we kind of haphazardly picked movies. We would watch them for 10 minutes and say, yeah, that, that, that seems like it'd be good. And what happened was we did a movie called the side hackers and then we picked it. We approved of it. It was paid for. 
And then we watched it and then, you know, we had watched 10 minutes of it. And then when we were finally writing it, we find out 20 minutes in, there's like this brutal rape scene in it. And, and it's not the kind of thing we wanted to, to joke about or riff about. So we cut this, we cut that scene out, but then we decided, you know, we have to watch the whole movie before we pick them. So then that job was given to me um, because um, everyone else, uh, at the staff at the time uh, where everybody was multitasking, you know, uh, Trace Beaulieu was a writer, but he was also designing the sets and, uh, Kevin Murphy was a writer, but he was also, he was also literally editing the show. <laughs> he was in the editing room a lot. Wow. And, uh, Mike Nelson was a writer, but he was also doing a lot of the music for the show. And I was a writer and I had no other talent. Mm-hmm. So they gave me the job of watching the movie. <laughs> and, and it fell to me. It seemed like such a, a time-consuming uh, task. Are, were you, are you spending like all of your 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 work time and your, no. your, your free time doing that? You know what? I had one. I think there was one after. You know, we had like a nine-day production cycle, mm-hmm. and um, one on one of those days would just be my day to screen movies, and you know, it was it was pretty great. You know, I basically went into work and got into my cubicle and just watched movies all day. I yeah. mean, what could be bad about that? That's a good gig to have. Right. You know, you know, one of the things you were mentioning about that, uh, that one film that had the rape scene in it, but I mean, one of the things that I, I really responded to about the show, uh, one of the many things was that occasionally there would be something that was obnoxious or not politically correct in one of the movies, like I remember in Mitchell, there was like a lot of like uh, Hispanic uh, derogatory phrase. I think at one point someone uses the phrase or uses the word wetback or something to describe this right. Hispanic character. And and everyone goes <laughs> all in unison, hey, which is just a, yeah. a great, great way to react to something like that. I love that you guys included some of those little details from the movies in there rather than necessarily sh- shying away. From yeah, the, we uh... were, you know, we were actually, um, and, you know, people put down uh, political correctness as it applies to comedy, but we were like, we were kind of ahead of our time in being politically correct. And just in the sense that um, we were very aware, like we never wanted to do stuff that would be offensive to women or that would be offensive to gay people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so we were very cognizant of that kind of thing. And, uh, and, you know, and any, and we had a rule, a very, um, hard line rule on the show was that if anybody objected to a joke and it made them uncomfortable, we would just automatically drop the joke. There wouldn't be a debate about it. Maybe, you know, there could be a debate about it, but it was ironclad that the person who said, I don't like that joke. I don't want it in the show. It would get dropped from the show. And, um, you know, and I think all these years later, um, I think it's 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 a really good thing that we did that because I think when you watch a lot of comedy from the 90s or the 80s, there's a lot of stuff that just has not survived the test of time. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of like homophobic stuff, misogynistic stuff. And uh, I don't think you'll find a lot of that on Mystery Science Theater episodes. And that was a conscious thing on our part. Yeah, no, the jokes never went there. It, it was the reaction yeah. to what was it, the content of the films that were being uh, yeah. commented upon. And that was, 
Yeah. <laughs> this is great. But, uh, you know, we all have our favorite episodes, uh, Frank. And uh, But which specific episode of the show? And I guess uh, this would involve the, the movie as well, and, and chiefly. Uh, best represented of what you wanted to achieve with the show. Like, what what's the one episode that you feel like, okay, now, if, if they remember me for this episode, I'll be satisfied? Oh, that's really hard to say, you know, um, because, uh, you know, there's so many episodes, and a lot of them I don't even remember. I mean, it's, a lot of it is a blur to me, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I would say, like, something like Mitchell would be Mitchell. very representative, yeah. um, and... Uh, uh, Cave Dwellers, I think, was a really strong episode, and um, uh, and the one um, Manos, of course. Yeah. Oh, I'm not even remembering the name of it, but the one with Trumpy in it was. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know that was a really good episode that people remember. And you know there was a line in it that a character said, "Trumpy, you can do magic things," which is now people I've wrote it on Twitter and other people have wrote it about Donald Trump saying, Trumpy, you can do racist things, you know? <laughs> so, uh, it's, yeah, I think those, but there are probably other episodes too, but I just uh, can't think of them. I, I accused my parents was another one that I was really liked. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, the shorts, just... you, you guys did a lot of shorts too, and those are really underrated. Yeah. In fact, for the longest, I got really familiar with the, uh, the, the shorts that you guys would do because I would, for yeah. the longest time, my, one of the earliest things I ever did in blogging was every Saturday morning, I would go to YouTube and try to find an MST3K short to post on my uh, blog because, uh, you know, I missed watching the show on Saturday morning. So, um, yeah, that, that was one of my, my favorite aspects of the, those. If you can find those shows on YouTube or those particular clips of the, uh, the shorts that were yeah, done the on shorts, the shorts are really some of the strongest, uh, parts of the show. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I know that I always, um, uh, Mr. B natural was a favorite <laughs> yeah. and, um, and there was another one, you know, the thing that was fun about the shorts is they really were very indicative of, of American attitudes in a certain time and place and, um, of what the people in charge, you know, in charge of education in America, the values that they were trying to convey, uh, to, to impressionable young minds. And it's, it's really hilarious. There was one film. We, I think my favorite of all the shorts we did was called a date with your family, mm-hmm. which was about just about how to behave at a family meal. And it's just hysterical that it's just, you know, any kind of emotion is not welcome, you know, just suppress everything. Uh, don't upset your father. You know, it's just <laughs> those, those films did a lot of the work for us in terms of, you know, generating the comedy because it, even without the riffing, those things are hilarious to look at. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, you must have seen some of those. And as soon as you pop the tape in the deck and it starts rolling, you, your mouth must have been watering for like, oh my yeah, god, this yeah. can't possibly exist for me. I know, I know. It's it's they're 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 amazing to watch, and um, uh, it is like some of some of the best moments on the show. I think were the shorts. So why did you end up uh, parting ways with the the show? Why did you end up uh, leaving the show? Well, I'd been on the show for five years, and I was just really, you know, interesting to uh, kind of see um, what it would be like to work on different kinds of shows, 
you know, mm-hmm. to uh, to be a comedy writer in 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 other settings. You know, I uh, you know you talked about my childhood earlier, and I think that you know ever since when I was a kid and I would watch the Dick Van Dyke show and, you know, he was a comedy writer on the show. And I think from the moment I heard that comedy writer was a job that you could have, it's something that I, I wanted to do. So, you know, so I was just anxious after doing a lot of, uh, Science Theater episodes, I was anxious to go to LA and see if I could work on a sitcom, work on a sketch show or, or a late night talk show and I, and animated shows. I worked on all kinds of shows. In, in all kinds of genres. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just something I really wanted to do. And, um, and, uh, it was, a, it was a difficult transition, but I was, uh, very happy that I did it. And another thing that was great when I moved to LA in like 1995 mm-hmm. was there was this great alternative comedy scene out there at the time. And, and so I was able to become a part of that, like right away. And that's where I made a lot of, uh, friends, um, that I'm still friends with to this day, like Patton Oswalt and Paul F. Tompkins and David mm-hmm. Cross and uh, Karen Kilgariff and Laura Keitlinger. And um, it, it was just, uh, it was, uh, uh, it was kind of a very creative uh, period to be out there. Yeah, it was great to see that, especially emerging after the uh, stand-up comedy of the 1980s, to have that alternative yeah. scene, uh, where in fact it was uh, it was quite successful there for you know especially the latter half of the 90s, where in fact uh, you know a lot of those comics ended up on uh, shows like Mr. Show on on HBO, and yeah. there was such a platform for that. And now it's almost uh, full circle with the the rebooted MST3K with Patton Oswalt playing. Your son, basically, the son of TV's friend. I know. <laughs> Which seems like, I mean, it's. It, I know. It, it, does that feel like a gigantic compliment to you as far as uh, knowing how talented uh, Patton Oswalt is and that he's playing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's playing a character. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, my, my feeling was is if they're going to cast someone else to play that part, I was glad it was Patton. You know? <laughs> was, uh, was there a part uh, of you that wished. Uh, the... Was there a part of you that wished that uh, it had been you, that they had recast you? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, um, uh, I think the, the one thing that was disappointing, uh, to me about it was that I wasn't, um, kind of asked to be part of the creative team of it. Mm. Um, and that, that's something I, I think I would have seriously considered doing is helping to write it and helping to conceive it. And, you know, just like I used to do on the show, um, you know, I think Joel always wanted to have a whole new cast uh, for the for the reboot, but um, <clears throat> I wouldn't have mind being a part of the uh, creative team of it. So that that was a disappointment to me. So, but you were getting along with Joel and everything with the uh, cinematic Titanic and uh, and that particular project that kind of led into the reboot. So there were there were no tensions between you and uh, Joel, were there? Uh, not not significant ones, I'd say. You know, I think that. Um, Cinematic Titanic was a great experience and um, uh, it's something I wouldn't have mind uh, to have kept doing, but I think Joel always had it in his mind that he wanted to do the Mystery Science Theater reboot. Mm -hmm. And when he finally got the rights to do it, that's, he wasn't able to do it for years because he didn't, he didn't have the rights to it. Once he got the rights back, he, um, you know, uh, he decided to do it and he wanted to do it with a whole new cast and everything and so that's just something that uh, 
there was intention about it, but it was it was just something that I was just never going to get to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Interesting, but uh, you know, in the meantime, in in the interim there, you worked uh, in some animation. In fact, did, did you you worked on uh, Invader Zim, which I think was a an, a tremendous show that uh, strangely d- didn't last very long, and I never understood why it had such a short lifespan. I think it was like what? A yeah, I don't really, and a half I don't really understand that either. Yeah. I don't understand that either, and. Um, you know, it's a show that people love. It's it's this when I uh, do appearances and I'm at the merch table signing stuff and people come up and talk to me. Um, that's the show besides Mystery Science Theater that people will talk more than any other show I've worked on. Uh, besides Mystery Science Theater, Invader Zim is the one that always comes up, and uh, and uh, I think and most of the people I know in the world of animation and. Um, uh, I think everybody agrees that if if uh, if Nickelodeon had kept that show on the air, it probably would have been another SpongeBob in terms yep. of how successful it would have been. But uh, for whatever reason, they canceled it after one season, and and I think it was a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. This is a, kind of a, a stupid move, but again, indicative yeah. of a lot of what we see in television, where yeah. a lot of times good shit is. Uh, is killed prematurely, and again, another reason and, why. Hey, you know what? It it, it happens in radio too. <laughs> yes, anyway. as we've uh, <laughs> as we've all badly witnessed here. Let, tell me yes. about uh, real quick. I want to I let you go here in a second, but tell me about Codename Douchebag. <laughs> oh, Codename Douchebag is my uh, is a novel <laughs> that I uh, put out a few months ago, and um, it's about a uh, a group of uh, washed up. Uh, conservative news pundits who want to get win the love and and get back in the game of uh, of profiting from their conservatism and getting back on TV. And so, what they do is they come up with a, a plan, a commando plan, to um, do a raid on an Aspen Institute um, that's going to be filled with liberals, um, and they're going to blow it up. Um, <laughs> And the, the the liberals are it's it's the annual meeting at this Aspen place where they're presenting the uh, latest upgrade of uh, Grey Poupon mustard, um, and uh, so that's the story of the book, and it's told entirely in tweets between the characters. Are you working on uh, any more uh, books at this point? Are you? Is there another project yeah, you've got I, your eyes on? Yeah, I have one. I have one that I'm not ready to talk about, but is going to come out sometime this year. And I always have uh, have something like that that I'm working on. So, um, so I'm, I'm I'm excited to just keep uh, keep producing stuff like that. Well, Frank, I have to tell you, this has been a gigantic honor for me. I can't thank you enough, not only for of course, being on the show, but also for uh, helping to create one of the greatest uh, comedic programs in the history of television. It's, it is no... Oh, thank you. It doesn't seem like it was actually real. That, 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 that kind of show like that it was able to make it on the air and be successful for so long. And, uh, and goddamn, thank you for all of that. Oh, thank you, and it's great to uh, to be on your show. You know that I'm a fan, and uh, it's great to be able to talk to you now that we don't have our regular Monday That's time right. to, to chat. Oh, and thank you for all the yes references on the show. I want to mention that again, too. <laughs> <laughs> my, my pleasure, believe me. All right, Frank. Well, thank you, and, uh, and we'll be in touch. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Bob. Take care. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
Okay, now picture your face in the mirror. Do you see all those wrinkles around your eyes? How about crow's feet or those large under-eye bags? Now imagine that they're gone. And I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery. I'm talking about gone in just a matter of minutes. We're talking, of course, about Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in just a matter of minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. And if you don't believe it, I didn't either until I took the test and I was blown away by the results. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. And the best part is... Plexiderm goes on clear, so no one is going to know that you're using it, unless you tell them, of course. Go to TryPlexiderm.com, use my code VOICES for 50% off a full-size bottle of Plexiderm, plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off, plus an extra $10 off. This offer is available by calling one 800 This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit TryPlexiderm.com today and use the code VOICES at checkout. That's TryPlexiderm.com, code VOICES.